take your Bibles and go to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Yesterday I had uh, woke up with a set of stuff I needed to do and uh, early in the process of getting some of those things done, Teresa and I were talking and, well, I, I should tell you, I've been looking for a uh, set of bookshelves for my office at the house. I have more books than I have uh, space for and so she was doing a little bit of uh, surfing on the internet and found a local business that uh, had deals that were too good to pass up on bookshelves, uh, or at least we thought it was local. Uh, it was in the city of Orange. <laughs> I've only been here a little while, so I'm learning some things the hard way, and the road trammel curse kicked in about halfway over there, and I thought, this is not local at all. I should have just driven to Houston probably, but anyway, in the process of that, we got over there. These deals were just too good to pass up, and we got over there. I've never been to Orange. I've been through Orange a couple of times. And uh, so we got over there and I had to kind of do some searching around and looking for the place. And we finally found it. And about a block away from pulling up to this particular business, I said to Teresa, you think they're open on Saturday? So the road travel curse was in full effect yesterday because sure enough, we got there, the business was closed. And uh, we had a great window shopping experience over there as we looked into this uh, place. And I didn't see any bookshelves while I was looking through the windows even. But uh, anyway, in the process of doing all of that and on our way home, I was thinking through today's message. And I thought, what a great parable that was as it relates to Christianity and churchianity in the modern day. Much is advertised, but often people, when they buy into the advertisement, find it lacking and go away empty-handed. I want to make sure you hear what I just said. Don't fill in blanks that I in, didn't intend to leave in there, okay? I am not saying that Christianity leaves people lacking. I am saying that what we often advertise as Christianity leaves people lacking. Many people holding up the church say, y'all come. And when people do come, they walk away thoroughly disillusioned with the church and with God. If that's true, and I believe that it is, I think that one of the things we have to come back to is to take Jesus' words to us and hold them for what they really are and then measure ourselves against them. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, we've looked at this already, so I'm not going to go back to it except to reference it. He says of Christians, you are salt and light. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. He doesn't say you should be. He says you are. You know what that means? That means that your life and our collective life as a church is an advertisement for the kingdom of God. Now that in itself ought to cause us to step back and go, oh, wow, wow, I hadn't really thought about it that way. We are advertisement for the kingdom of God. So how much are we like my experience yesterday where we buy into the advertisement and that company went to great lengths to get the advertisement out there so that people could even stumble across it. And yet when people go to us, salt and light, 
What is it that we leave them with? As we come to this passage today, one of the things that I believe that we find is that Jesus shoves us out of religion. Now, the title of the message is Move Beyond Religion. And I know in order to say that, I'm going to have to spend a little bit of time uh, defining what I mean and letting us all get on the same page as it relates to this term called religion. Now, I came up with my own definition for this. That's a sign of a true genius. He can take a word and make up his own definition. You do that all the time. If you don't, then join the ranks of genius and just start making up your own definitions for stuff. Don't do that with the highway patrolman who pulls you over and, you know, say, well, speeding doesn't actually mean above the speed limit. Don't try that, all right? In my case, I decided religion needs to mean a system of belief and behavior that is adopted by an individual or a group. One more time. A system of belief and behavior... Adopted by an individual or a group. I went online later and checked my definition, and that's almost exactly what Merriam-Webster says religion is. It is a system of belief and behavior that is adopted by an individual and by a group. You want a good example of that? Most of us know of what we call the Muslim religion And most of us know, because of our exposure to news organizations and those kind of things, our 30-second soundbite understanding of what the Muslim religion entails, among other things, is the fact that Muslim people pray five times a day. Usually they take a prayer mat, they lay it out, they face Mecca, and they pray five times a day. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter if they're at work. It doesn't matter where they are in their situation. If they're truly devout Muslims in their religion, they will stop and pray five times a day. Now, that's the behavior that follows the belief. So let's personalize this because my guess is that very few of us in here would call ourselves Muslims. If you happen to be Muslim and you're here today or listening over the internet, then I want to say to you, welcome to the discussion. Because there's some things in what we're going to talk about today that even non-Christian people need to hear, but especially Christians do. Let's try this religion thing on for size a little bit and see how it fits. How much of your Christianity is religion-based? Now that sounds like rain. Everybody's looking around at one another. I've been here long enough now to know that's called rain, all right? God didn't tell me or as far as I know anybody else to build an ark today, so it's probably going to be okay. We'll be all right when we get out. So back to the message. How much of your Christian behavior is based in religion? One of the things that you've already heard me say on a regular basis in here, and you'll continue to hear it because it's part of the way I read the church in our day and how we probably need to make some adjustments to be what God wants us to be, is we tend to emphasize the trappings of religion. In our Christianity, now today I'm using Christianity and religion as two separate terms, okay? And usually, I told you last week, I think, when I refer to religion, usually it's in a negative connotation. 
today I'm going to use it kind of both positively and negatively, but right now I want to use it in a negative sense. The religion of many Baptist and, let's say, Christian people has lots of trappings to it. I've had the opportunity to, bi- to uh, visit in many of your homes. And some of you are going, oh my goodness, does that mean he's coming to my house? You just never know, do you? Uh, but m- nearly every home that I've visited in since I've been here has had some of what I call the trappings of Christianity. I'm not using it in a negative term here. I walk in and I see plaques or I see crosses or I see you know, framed stuff that are either Bible verses or sayings that have something to do, you know, God bless this home and all that come in here or something like that. Uh, get the preacher out of here, God, if you're really there, those kind of things. And so I see that, and I want you to hear me now very carefully. Those can be genuine expressions of your Christianity. But they equally can be just trappings of religion, a system of belief and behavior of an individual or a group of people. So when I talk about the trappings of Christianity and I'm trying to, or of religion especially, uh, I'm trying to pull this down so that you'll wear what's yours before I even get started in the message today. How much life is evident in your Christianity? One of the reasons I ask that is because one of the things that I came across many years ago when I was making the transition out of my life before I really wanted to please God with it and my life as a minister afterwards, I came across a quote. I wish I had written it down so that I could nail it down every time. I've had to just kind of make it my own. And here's basically the way it goes. And it speaks to the need for us to personalize our faith and not buy into just a set of beliefs out there. What was granddad's fiery passion for God became dad's burning zeal for the church and it was the son's blazing nuisance in his life. Notice the progression, actually the regression there. For one individual, the granddad, it was a vital, vibrant life, his life with God. And the next generation down took what was granddad's and it just kind of reduced it to an institutional focus. So instead of being a life that is lived out and nurtured, it became a maintenance of an organization called the church. That's religion. In the truest sense of the word, that's religion and not a relationship. And the problem with that is by the time you get to the third generation, they've lost the basis for the maintenance. And so then it just becomes, I don't even need that anymore. You want to know why so many of our teenagers and college students who grow up in church walk away from God and the church by the time they get to be juniors in high school? It's because many of them have never seen a vibrant relationship with God in the church. It's easy to walk away from something that is just an institution. It's something else to walk away from genuine life. That is the landscape of Matthew chapter 5. What I've just spent, I don't know, 
10 minutes or however long I've been going now, what I just did was try to lay out for us a modern perspective of the landscape that Jesus faces as he comes to the Sermon on the Mount. By the time we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 7, these people to whom Jesus is speaking on the side of that mountain will have felt a push from Jesus out of the status quo of religion. Let me just come back to where I started. Many times, as church people, we're guilty of throwing up the advertisement that says, here is life. And so the lost world out there picks up on the advertisement. They drive to Orange, which is us, and then they sample what we offer as Christian people. And many, many, many of them hear that, see that, and walk away. Because the advertisement just doesn't follow up in reality. In other words, we're guilty of pushing religion when we really ought to push relationship. Let's look at this passage. We really base what we're saying in verse 20. Now, I've already mentioned this to you one time. And we're going to continue to mention this because verse 20 is the thesis of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives this truth and then everything that follows now hangs on that truth. It is explanation to what he means when he says in verse 24, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And what Jesus has said with that is this, those people who are the religious intelligentsia of your time, the doctors, the PhDs, those people who know religion, those ones to whom people look up, or at least they want you to look up to them as if they are the ones who got it right. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you don't have a chance in, the, in getting into the kingdom of heaven. That is, that is an incredible statement that Jesus makes that would have rocked them on that hillside. Well, if those people can't get in, what about people like us? What Jesus does now in this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 21 all the way through the end of the chapter, is he gives us six different snapshots. Here's what I mean when I say your righteousness has to go beyond theirs. And so we see in verse 21... Here's the basic formula that Jesus is going to use in these six different statements. You have heard that it was said to those of old. And then verse 22, he comes back and he says, but I say to you. So here's the way he does that. Let me pull it down for you. Jesus says, now I know that your religion says this. I'm telling you this. Now we make a mistake if we think that Jesus is setting those two at odds with one another. He's not giving them a new commandment. We've already seen that in verse 17 and following. He's saying to them, this old teaching that you have, I'm going to come now and I'm going to fill it full of new meaning. It's not that this stands in opposition to that. It's that this completes that. He fills it full. So one of the things you're going to hear me say from time to time is that Jesus says, I'm here to fill full... And I'm not misspeaking with that. We think fulfill, but he fills full the old. All right? For an example, go back to verse 21. You have heard that it was said, don't murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. Well, let me stop for a second. 
I, I want a show of hands, okay? How many of you have a problem with murder? I mean, you really can't stop killing people. So far, I'm the only one. Makes you wonder, though, doesn't it? Now, every one of us, by show of hands or lack of same, every one of us has no problem with verse 21. As far as you know, you haven't killed anybody today. Or murdered them, at least. But, go to verse 22. But I say, Jesus says, but I say that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Okay, let me just stop there. Well, no, I don't want to stop yet. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, now I'll just now we'll stop there. Yesterday, I didn't kill anybody yesterday, although I did think about it. You remember when I talked to you about Highway 69, when you get down there to, was it 321 or whatever it is, where it goes from four lanes down to two? Remember that? Several of you have talked to me about the time that I mentioned that in here, and I talked about our control orientation. Knowing that the road comes down to one lane on your side, people still get in the right lane so they can get in front of you. Right? Remember that? Hello? Okay. I just didn't know if I was the only one living here or not. Yesterday... I was there, pulled up, nobody behind me, and this lady, no, excuse me, she was a woman, she was no lady, (laughs) pulls up beside me and guns it just enough to get half a car link in front of me and slows down to my speed, knowing, well, now see, she didn't know that I was capable of murder. Well, I'm really not capable of murder, but i got to tell you, I thought about it. I at least got angry. I didn't call her any names, but I thought of a few while we were at that. You understand what I'm saying? Not a single person in here has a problem with murder, but every one of us has a problem with anger. And if you don't, well, first of all, you're a liar. We'll get to your other problem here in a little bit. Now, I want to come back and and make a few comments relative to what Jesus is saying and how he puts this together. What I want you to see from that is that Jesus takes the established religion and he moves it internally. He moves it to motive. He moves it to the heart. I'm going to come back to that, but let me make a few comments about this idea of religion. Because what Jesus does here in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is he takes the established religious order of the day and he shoves them into a heart religion, a good positive religion, in other words. But let's talk about the negative effects of religion because I'm working from the assumption, from the presupposition that churches and Christians across America today struggle with buying into a dead religion as opposed to a live relationship. So let's just try it on and see if it works. See if it's ours. Take some ownership where necessary. See, religion in the negative sense of what I'm saying has some really negative side effects. For one, religion tends to marginalize God. 
What I mean by that is that when we buy into a religion as a fixed set of rules, belief and behaviors that are reduced to a set of rules, when we buy into that, we don't really need God. Now, follow along with what I'm saying. And again, like I said, let's make sure that we're trying on and wearing what is rightfully ours to wear here. I want to talk to you about the religious element, the trapping of religion as we know it in our day as it relates to prayer. How many of you have heard, you don't have to show your hands or anything, but just think through. Have you heard the saying that says prayer changes things? That is, in my opinion a trapping of religion. And it's a trap, by the way. If we really believe that prayer changes things, then really you don't need God. Well, I know that that's not exactly right. I didn't say that exactly the way we believe it. Actually, the way we believe it, if we say prayer changes things, we still need God But we don't need him to be God. What we need is for him to do what we want. Because prayer changes things as a statement that says, essentially, if we'll just get focused in and do this, then God has to respond some way. We believe that so much that if it's a really big problem, we call our friends. We might even call a prayer meeting at church and say, we've got to all pray together on this so that more of us who pray together, it's certain that God's going to act on our behalf. You know what we call that theologically? Dumb. That is humanism in religious clothing. That is a way of saying, we will say this, and we will decide this, and we'll take it to God, and we'll force God's hand to do something. You know what's wrong with that? God can't be forced to do anything by us. You realize that before this sermon is over, not mine, but the one Jesus is preaching, we're going to have a section of this sermon relative to prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer, best described it as the model prayer. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, we actually even sang a little bit about it this morning. Our Father, the one in heaven, let your name be holy. You know that what he does with that, and, and we'll, we'll spend, I don't know, six or eight years on it when we get there. We'll pull it apart, and you know what Jesus does repeatedly in that prayer? He tells us to position yourself under the authority of God. Prayer is not about us getting our will with God. It is about us positioning ourselves to acknowledge the fact that God is God and we are not. But you see, the religious trapping of prayer says if we'll just do it enough, we'll force God's hand. Religion tends to marginalize God. We take an element of truth, we make it our own, and then we make it what we want it to be. That's what religion is. Very negative connotation to all of that. And so when we do that, if we can have a religion that doesn't require God to be God, then we'll just adopt a simple concept of God. That'll do just fine, thank you. And so then we begin to live our lives 
Well, let me say it this way. I'm told that there is some place on this planet that is called Madagascar. I've never been there. I'm told that it's a genuine place. I can accept that. As a matter of fact, I can even use it in a sermon as if it's real. But as far as I know, somebody's leading me down a path with that. Okay? So I can live with the concept that there's a place called Madagascar out there, but it makes no difference in my life. Tell me that's not how a lot of people are as it relates to God. Or I'll buy into the concept that there's a God somewhere, but when it comes to living my life as if he is real and wants a relationship with me, uh, I'm not sure that that really makes that much of a difference. Let me put it a different way to you. If somebody somehow could prove that God doesn't exist, how would that change your life? I'm not. Now, first of all, nobody can do that, okay? God is God, He is real, and He makes claims on us, but some of us live our lives as such that it's just a concept of God, and if He could be disproven, it really wouldn't change our lives a bit. But you see, somebody who knows and walks with God and who lives with Him, and He gives us life on a day-to-day basis, that would totally change how we have to live our lives. By the way, one of the ways you can know that there is a God, if you happen to be one going, I'm just not too sure about that. One guy said one time, a brilliant statement, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. Somebody can argue against God all day long, but you'll never convince me because I know Jesus Christ in my life. But if you buy into a concept of God, as opposed to a genuine relationship with God, then you might be practicing religion and not Christianity at all. So what happens when we reduce God to a concept and we buy into the trappings of a religion, but there's no reality, no relationship with God there, what we end up with is a God in a box. We take him out, and it's like that old jack-in-the-box thing. We turn the crank on it. Some of you don't even remember what that was. Google it, see what it looks like. You turn the crank on this little box and some sorry excuse for music is going on and then boom, all of a sudden, this ugly creature jumps out of the box. A jack-in-the-box. We've opted for a God in a box in our churches because religion rules the day. And so when we need our little confined God, we turn the crank. And if it's really a problem and we get eight others, call it a prayer meeting and together we turn the crank. And make God jump out of the box and do our bidding. Very humanistic approach, and it is a very religious thing. So before we go any further, let's stop and try this one on. How would you characterize your life today? Do you have a vibrant relationship with God? Or have you bought into a concept that's very impersonal, depersonalized God. What do you do with that? That's the landscape of the first century. Jesus deals with a group of people who have a religious system that they are tied into that is oppressive to them. One of the reasons that it's oppressive to them is because... uh, 
religion always pushes towards legalism. For those Jews, these scribes and the Pharisees that are the caretakers of the religious system of that day had so whittled down what was intended to be a relationship between God and his people that they made it such a legalistic approach that it was oppressive to those people. That's one of the reasons we find later in the book of Matthew, Jesus will say to those same religious leaders, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, who put all of this burden of the law on these people and cause them to miss God in the process. Religion always pushes to legalism. Before we're too hard on the scribes and Pharisees, let's make sure that we understand our own love for legalism. I did an experiment a few years ago. <laughs> it was August, and the church that I was serving, uh, I usually wore a coat and tie there. And uh, the reason I did is because there were people in the church that thought you couldn't possibly preach. It was unbiblical if you didn't have a coat and a tie on. Back to legalism, right? So I decided to play a little experiment on those folks. And so on a particular Sunday in August, I wore a Christmas tie. You should have seen, what can you imagine the comments I got? You see, the clothes police, the legalists who focused on clothing, said this, you can't wear a Christmas tie in August. Really? Why not? Why not? Well, the answer is because it doesn't fit our system. Christmas ties are reserved from Sunday after Thanksgiving until Christmas Day. Just like you can't wear white shoes, ladies. Well, never mind. We love legalism. And we find the most incredible places to practice it. So there were some people said, you can't wear a Christmas tie in August. Others said, you can't wear that Christmas tie in church ever. You know why? Because it had the Grinch on it. It was an autobiographical tie. And so some people, oh, by the way, and the Grinch had on Santa outfit. So the religionists of the church... The legal scribes and Pharisees looked at my tie. They never got to the you can't wear Christmas in August because they were so tied to you can't wear Grinch ties in church. And especially you can't wear it to preach in. My goodness, what kind of preacher do we have? And I answered, you have the kind of preacher who wears Grinch ties in August. What's it to you? We love our legalism. You want something a little more insidious than that one? See, I set them up for that. When I was a youth minister working in Edinburgh, we started reaching out, which was a fresh experience for that church at that time. We started reaching out to the youth group, and we started reaching a group of kids in the, in the city uh, who had a reputation for being vandals. Horror of all horrors, the skateboarding crowd started coming to church. These kids, they'd never been to church. So we started seeing them get saved, be baptized, be discipled. You know what the problem is with reaching people outside the church for church people, for the religionists? They come to church. 
those dirty outsiders start coming to church and messing with our kids. Oh, hello. Now I'm preaching. So these kids started coming to church. And one Sunday, one of these kids came from an incredibly horrible background, family life. He came into the worship service carrying his skateboard in one hand and a can of Coke in the other. Now, I don't mean cocaine. Some of you just immediately jumped out there. I know you did. Coca-Cola. And he went and he sat down in the sanctuary. I'm going to come back to that term in a minute. And I had one of the dear, sweet, little old ladies, Queen Pharisee she was, who came up to me. She was red in her face. She was mad. You know why? That little boy brought a Coke into the sanctuary. Legalism. Let me, first of all, challenge the word sanctuary. That in itself is a religious term. You know what this is that we're worshiping in today? A building. Okay? We could have a dance in here. Oh, sorry, can't say dance in a Baptist church. <laughs> we could have a cookout, a cook-in in this building. We could do anything. This is a building. And in her mind, it was a, let me use the religious inflection, a sanctuary. And horror of all horrors, he brought in a Coca-Cola. I'll tell you something. We love our legalism. And the problem with legalism other than what I've already talked about, is this one. Legalism always marginalizes people. It is about following the letter of the law. It is not about relationship, whether relationship with God or relationship with others. Legalism pulls it down to that manageable set of rules. Now, that's a key statement I just made. The ones that we can't manage, we just leave them out. Jesus will have none of that. So he starts with the big ones. The first one is this one on anger. Oh, we, we, we like the murder part because all of us fit that one. But when he starts talking about anger, then we say, well, that's a Jesus that we'll just kind of put him off to the side. After that, he's going to talk about lust. And after that, he's going to talk about divorce. And after that, well, you can just look. Six different issues, hot topics for their day. Jesus takes them head on and he says, I know that your religion says this. And he even acknowledges those are founded in the law. But he puts both hands on their chest and he pushes away and he says, you're missing it if you're just tied to the letter. Now back to where I started, make sure we're all on the same page. The church of our day advertises worldwide that there's no better life than what we offer. But if we're offering a legalistic religion, 
as opposed to the relationship that is Christianity, people are going to walk away from us and say, I'll have none of that. And I don't blame them. There's plenty of religion in this world. There's not plenty of relationship with the Holy God. So what do you do with all of that? Let me just recap and we'll be done. What we find in this passage from verse 20, the theme of the whole Sermon on the Mount, all the way to the end of the chapter, six different hot topic issues that Jesus picks up and uses them to reiterate to them, this is not just a religious system. It is a relationship with God that you cannot pull off on your own. Oh, I can pull off the don't murder most days, but the anger part of it takes me beyond myself every day. So he essentially says the weakness of religion is that it has no heart in it. It's reduced to just the letter of the law and both God and people are left behind in a religious system. And in doing so, he fills full God's intent of the law in the first place. And he says to you and he says to me, I have a way that will blow your mind. A life that is beyond what you can even imagine is available to you. 1960s, mid-60s, maybe late 60s, I don't remember exactly. I was a little kid in those days. My dad had decided he was going to get his life back in order and follow the Lord like he had been called to do. The church that we went to in Houston, Texas, had a ministry that went down to Herman Park in that area in Houston uh, and did some ministry on Sunday afternoons in the park. Now, most of you may not be old enough to know, but in the 60s in Herman Park in Houston was where the hippies hung out. I mean, like real hippies. Some of you used to be that, I know, and I would love to see the pictures, okay? Um, but it was a very anti-religious crowd down there. And so one, my dad tells a story. He went down one day and he walked up and there's this group of people there and he walks up to them and he's going to tell them about Jesus Christ. He begins to speak and he says, this guy turns around. He said he was a hippie, but on top of that he was a biker. I don't remember if he was a hell's angel or not, but might as well have been. My dad said that guy looked at him with the most demonic look he had ever seen in his life and snarled back at my dad, I hate religion. For the record, modern people hate religion. And when we try to sell religion, they ain't buying. And I don't blame them. My dad, with great wisdom, responded, I do too. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. He's the answer, folks. This world doesn't need religion. This world doesn't need legalism. We reach out and start reaching people in this community, bringing them in here. The last thing they need is a bunch of legalism to slap them in the face. What they need is a relationship, living relationship with Jesus Christ. By the way, that's not just what they need. That's what you need. And that's what I need. And the day-to-day -day emphasis on religion that leaves God out and that 
diminishes the role of other people and chops up other people for the sake of the religion, that's from the mouth of hell. And we got to get it right as we move forward. Because when people encounter the living God, oh man, everything changes. Our worship team does a wonderful job of leading us to worship. You listen to the words of the songs that we sing on a a Sunday week-by-week approach in here. It emphasizes relationship because that's where life is. So where is it for you? Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say, I'll close with this. In the 1400s, one of the popes, said to a painter named Michelangelo, we need to do something with that chapel over there in Rome. And so what we know as the painting on the, surf, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel was commissioned by one of the popes to Michelangelo, 1400s, finished in the mid-1400s. In 1980, a restoration project was begun on that Sistine Chapel ceiling, all that painting that was there. Many of us may remember some of that. What had happened is through all of the centuries, many of them without electricity, so all the light in there was by candlelight and by oil lamps, residue had gone from those lamps and those candles and had coated the painting of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. On top of that, other things that had happened, just general wear and tear and all that kind of stuff. So what, as people looked up at that ceiling, they still saw the painting, but the vibrant colors were missing. So they decided that they would do a restoration of the painting there, and they took them a number of years to get through it. And as they started pulling off the grime of that, they started seeing just how incredible was the work of art. Different colors vibrant stuff that just jumped off of that canvas that was a ceiling. Never recognizable before because of all of the grime that had coated it. And I would say to you that's a great example to us of the need for us on an occasional basis like today to come back to what we believe and pull off the grime that has gathered through the years and strip it back to its bare essence And our faith is a faith of the heart. It's not the head, although you need to use your head. It's not just some mental thing that we say, okay, I'll buy that concept. It is a genuine relationship with the living God. And you might need to do some restoration work today to get back to that. Who is God to you? How real is he to you? Let's pray. We come to this time. And my invitation to each of you is that right there where you sit, just you and God, you do business with Him at the level of just how real is my faith. Is it a whole just a body of stuff that I've signed off on, like I'm going to sign my income tax eventually, income tax return eventually? Is it say, okay, I believe this is true, okay, I'll sign off on it. Or is your relationship with God vibrant and real on a day-to-day basis? How long has it been since the living God spoke to you in ways that you heard Him? If it's been a while, if there needs to be some restoration, today's the day and this invitation is for you 
that you get it right. Some of you may be here and you never met Jesus Christ in a saving way. Today is the day of salvation. Deep inside, even now, the Holy Spirit's at work in you saying, you've got to do something about this. That's where life begins. This invitation is for you. So, Father, we come to this time. We ask you to take it and use it for your glory. Change us out of the old into the real. In Jesus' name.